you're listening to Giro Vagando, the cycling podcast at the 2022 Giro d'Italia, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Dear Pirates, even in the most beautiful moments an ominous shadow loomed over you. The emotions can't be erased and I won't retract a single word of what I wrote at the 1998 Tour de France. I know you let yourself go and you let yourself die and your agonizing slide, those curves through the darkness, unlike a descent off, say, the Col d'Aspin, deserve to be dignified with a silence that my job doesn't allow. Brian, today we released a kilometer zero, which was an, well, I hope an interesting sort of intersection of important figures in Italy, uh, an important voice in Italian life culture, Pier Paolo Pasolini, Salon, the history of Salon, we're just up the road from Salon now, and the concept of great journeys in Giro d'Italia. Now we, we're beginning tonight with another sort of intersection of Italian institutions. Marco Pantani, we heard there an ode to the late pirate by Gianni Mora. Now last night we mentioned Gianni Mora, didn't we? We mentioned him in connection with another great Italian institution, Olivetti, because we were staying in Ivrea, the town of Ivrea, which gave birth to Olivetti, the company, Adriano Olivetti, the founder of Olivetti. And we heard there at the top of the show from our host in the lovely Osteria San Maurizio last night, bemoaning, maligning, lamenting the loss not only of Adriano Olivetti, but a bit of his legacy in Ivrea. It was, it was fascinating to listen to, wasn't it, how this town of Ivrea in Piedmont had really enjoyed this booming these glory days in the 50s and 60s. Olivetti was a, a company that was envied all over Italy, all over the world indeed, grew into a, into a giant of Italian industry, famous for the way it treated its employees, the way, it, the way Adriano Olivetti combined the principles of communism with capital, the best of communism, the best of capitalism. And, uh, well, we got the impression that Ivrea wasn't booming these days and Olivetti, the company, although it still exists, its glory days have passed. Final thing on Pantani, tomorrow we go over the Valico di Santa Cristina, the scene of one of Pantani's most famous exploits in the 1994 Giro d'Italia. One of the two stage wins in that Giro that really launched him as an icon in Italy. It was quite beautiful to hear it in her words because she told the story of Olivetti through her childhood memories because her parents at least her father worked there and it, it, it gave her like a, a, really a magic childhood because they took such good care of the people who worked there and it actually reminded me of uh, Carlsberg, the Danish brewer Jakobsen who I think he had a similar approach to how he treated people who worked at, at the brewery. That town is, is if, it was, if it gave birth to Olivetti with his disappearing or his influence being gone, uh, the, the soul of Ivrea looks rather ragged at this point, unfortunately. Died, Brian, on a train to Switzerland. Um, he was just passing, he was just actually approaching Lausanne. He was heading from, I think, Milan to a meeting in Switzerland. He died of a brain hemorrhage on the train in Egle, home of the UCI, in their headquarters. There's a lot to process there, isn't there? Pantani, Gianni Mura. Olivetti, last night we said that Gianni Mori used to use an Olivetti typewriter. I managed to find out exactly which model it was. It was the Lettera 
32, which, as I said last night, was the was the sort of most iconic Olivetti. I, think. I have the exact same machine yeah, at home. Of course you do. Yeah, of course you do. But it also, I think, it it proves the point of how these things are linked. You know, Mura, Pantani, Olivetti the story of the Industrial Revolution in Italy, the rise and fall of family dynasties and all of that. It, it, it's not just a bike race. It's not just. It's definitely not just a bike race. It's not just a journey around Italy either, a jaunt around Italy, because we've done a lot of driving today. We've headed, well, yes, we're in the Val d'Aosta, right in the northeast, northwest corner, sorry. And today, well, we're back in the sort of center north of Italy, just on the western, southwestern edge of Lake Garda, just up the road from Salò where the Giro will resume tomorrow. We're in a place called Monigo del Garda, which I remember having visited years ago on the scent, on the hunt for Jamolidin Abdu Japarov, um, the Uzbek sprinter, illustrious Uzbek sprinter of the 1990s, and he settled here. A lot of Russians, former Soviet athletes, um, who came to Italy to seek their fortune in cycling in the 90s, ended up settling in this area. Schmil was another one, Konichev. just up the road. Exactly, exactly. Konishev, in fact, well, stayed here, had a family, and his son now rides as an Italian, doesn't he, for bike exchange. Brian, how have you enjoyed your rest day otherwise? Has it been a restful one? Yeah, I think so. We had a, we had a bit of a, if I'm allowed to say, uh, we were a bit sort of stopped in our tracks this morning, because even without... Lionel's rock sack of, of doom. We had some a bit of floundering, a bit of fumbling. Things we? we that's an editorial we or what? So the. <laughs> well, I was up at seven thirty this morning, Brian. You didn't surface until half nine. I mean, we would have been on Lake. We would have been paddling on Lake Garda <laughs> by eleven just o'clock us? this morning if it had been up to me. Yeah, I mean, you call it um, the Grand Tour text. Something must get lost over the course of three weeks. But crucially, it was found again, Brian. It was. It was. Brian, tonight we are going to be taking our listeners questions it is the press conference yesterday i said that you had experience of many press conferences in your long and venerable career as a press officer as a communications chief of leading teams including team sky csc orica green edge and what it later became mitchelton scott Brian, did you used to enjoy setting up press conferences did you enjoy the experience of watching riders squirm and wince or at times i suppose come out of a press conference come out of press conferences where with their sort of chest out feeling as though they'd they'd done some pretty good work and maybe changed people's opinions of them or forwarded a particular personal agenda i mean i haven't done that many press conferences at the giro but i've done a lot at the tour rest days if, when you work with media and, and definitely the same goes for media for journalists the rest day is a really busy day and it was part of my job. It was where I had a specific task to, to do. I often found that the second press conference, uh, second rest day press conference, everyone were, t- it was, were really tired. Writers, journalists, a lot of undone washing, a lot of sort of what people stopped caring about. Seems to me like a bit more, the second rest day press conferences were a bit more pungent than the first yeah, ones. Yeah, they? yeah, yeah. People not, not, not caring the line about of questioning. Yeah. But they've changed a huge amount since your, if I can call it your heyday in the mid noughties they were very at times they were very combative affairs and this is something we'll maybe revisit later in the week but you know you sat in on had to sort of observe administer organize some quite well memorable ones momentous i would even say 
and where there were doping allegations being made at riders and, and batted back. And, and these were moments of high drama at times and high tension, weren't they? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't mind that. I mean, it was not, it's not a comfortable situation when, when a rider is on the accusation. But, you know, when you, if you're a press officer for a successful team, a lot of your work, in my opinion, consists of just not standing in the way. Make sure journalists get what they need. Make sure the riders get their rest. But in, in more difficult times, uh, you know, it's more challenging. And, and even as, as difficult as can be, as that can be, I've, I think it's, you have to take that in your stride when you work in that in this line of work. Really. Before we get to the listeners' questions, I'd just like to know from you. How much briefing used to go on in those days? Was it routine for you to take, I don't know, half an hour out before the press conference started to feed the riders or warn the riders about the questions they were likely to get and formulate some kind of response? Or did that work take place at the training camps before the season started? My impression is that generally the public thinks that the riders are briefed within an inch of their life. I, as a journalist, having been to hundreds of press conferences, in cycling, my impression is that that is not the case. No, and I, I agree with you. It's most often not the case. But a lot has changed, I find. And a lot, a lot ha- changed over the course of years when I did the tour, where there's a lot of specula- speculative stories, a lot of rumors. You know, the scenario where a rider would be asked a question based on something that was mere speculation or a quote that wasn't exactly 100% correct that would sometimes force a rider to comment or reply to something that wasn't entirely true or was just either a rumor or, or someone actually not having said what they were quoted. So I tried to keep pretty good stock of what had actually been said and which stories were ill-founded or which stories weren't exactly true. So I kind of saw it as my job to make sure that the riders knew, yeah, this is a real story, this is speculation, don't necessarily confirm something that you don't, know anything about because that, that's also the tour I you know you've been to the tour many times uh, sitting working in the press room and you you see stories sort of especially now when you know, with the, you have a press and social media it doesn't take a lot for a false story to get a pretty long uh, they're, they're hard to kill sometimes especially the tour because people would often just write them anyways and then if, if a writer has to go out and reply to something that's actually not the case I, I saw it as my job to make sure that they knew what sort of was worth commenting on and what was just mere speculation. Still gassing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Supersapiens. I've been asking Christina Scrocher of the University of Verona, who also works for Super Sapiens, some beginner's questions, if you like, about my blood glucose levels. And one of the questions I had was whether the stress and strain of covering a grand tour, the long days working, the late meals, the relative lack of physical activity would have much impact on my blood glucose levels. If you'd like to find out more about Super Sapiens, go to supersapiens.com. But here's Christina's verdict. Covering the Giro as a journalist is definitely going to be a stressful period. I mean, regardless of the fact that you're doing an amazing job. So if you're a person that, that's actually prone to, to, let's say, be exposed to stress and therefore your glucose levels 
might be also influenced by stress, these are kind of the first thing that you might see. Regardless of the glucose, you will probably sleep less and your sleeping quality will also uh, be a bit changed and therefore you might also see some changes there. Imagine yourself as an athlete that was training home and then you go to a training camp and the training load really increases and you see some changes on your body and especially you perceive some changes on your body. So this is kind of the same system. Imagine that Jiro is a training camp for you and you're probably under a lot of stress. You don't have your normal rhythm that you have home. You are going to be lacking recovery and you're going to be exposed to a lot of stress. So all these things might impact your glucose levels. Or maybe they don't. We will see. There will be something interesting to, to get your feedback on. Well, Brian, I've been briefing you all afternoon. We've got our questions. We've got a dozen or so questions from listeners coming up. Some very good ones, some very probing ones. And, well, without too much further ado, let's crack on with the press conference. Hey, Daniel and Brian. Thanks a lot for all the coverage so far on the cycling podcast at the Giro this year. Um, I'll keep it short with how many tributes have already been made to Richard, but I do have to acknowledge that it was a cycling podcast back in 2016 that made me fall in love with the sport and uh, as an American, inspired me to follow the Giro in 2017, um, which culminated with a meetup in Milan uh, ahead of the time trial, and I, I actually got interviewed as part of the podcast. Um, I had a really special experience and got to meet both Richard and Daniel at the time, and um, it actually pushed me towards um, continuing to follow cycling and and ended up with uh, with a career of my own at, at Specialized Bikes today, where I'm, I'm happily working. But most importantly, my question for Daniel and Brian today, um, we hear such a lovely summary of all the meals you, you all enjoy um, through your time in, in traveling, particularly in Italy. I'd love to hear, um, if you were going to start a restaurant, what kind of restaurant would you start? Whether that's a restaurant or a cafe or a bar of some sort. Brian, our friend Noah Price has gone right to the kernel of the matter in our Giro coverage. Brian, to be honest, I'm surprised you haven't opened a restaurant already because you've done most things. You've had a clothing company, <laughs> you've sold sculptures, you've made wine. How come you haven't opened a restaurant? Well, you haven't, you know, asked me if I wanted to do it with you, for instance. I would have to do it oh, with a with a business partner that I liked and someone that I, that I respected. But if I were to open a restaurant with you, I think we would debate very very long about the menu because you and i don't really like the same things okay let's get to noah's question what kind of restaurant would you open and maybe where would you open it i would obviously open it close to where i live on the coast of tuscany and i would open uh, a fish restaurant if, if anything something that was also very i think the menu would be very vegetable based my wife has taught me the relevance of that and i've sort of i've probably also come to a point in my life where i think i could possibly do without eating a lot of meat in general it doesn't really do anything for me it certainly doesn't do anything for the environment so i would do um, a fish restaurant with the only sort of different thing would be there would also be an immense selection of red wine which is not standard for a f for a fish restaurant so it would be a significant wine list and just good fresh material what i like about italian food is they don't really with the, the places i like anyways they don't mess too much with it if you have good olive oil, if you have good produce, if you have good fish, access to quality stuff, just don't mess with it, really. It's a bit like the Italian language is easy in one respect in that you pronounce every letter. In Italian cuisine, you can see 
pretty much every ingredient that yes. you're about to eat, which is quite different from French food. I think it's a point that Francois Thomas has made on the on the Tour de France coverage. He calls Italian food. I think he's likened it in in one of his more irreverent moments to baby food. Um, I, I guess meaning that it's shots fired. Yeah, I guess meaning that it's quite sort of stripped down and simple and might seem a little bit artless at times but the symphony comes from the the music the poetry comes from the ingredients comes from the earth yeah. which is something you know a lot about um as a winemaker i mean i would definitely go along with what you said about vegetables my a great source of frustration for me on the grand source is just not being able to access vegetarian dishes good vegan options particularly it's something that in a place like Berlin where I now live it's very very easy to do there are multiple choices on every you menu. would have thrived on the Linda McCartney team <laughs> wouldn't you <laughs> yeah with Max I would have loved to have been a teammate of Max Chandry but I think that's what I would do I would probably I, I think the Italians are very innovative and they're not dogmatic. Well, I say that. I mean, we've cited so many examples over the years of um, the Italians being very dogmatic about their cuisine, not believing that certain flavours can go together, whether it's Parmesan and Arrabbiata sauce, or, um, well, there are many, many examples. However, they are very innovative, and I think they will eventually become very innovative with, with vegan, vegetarian cooking. And one thing, and this is not just basically, you know, tackling Francois Thomas or what I've found from doing a lot of tours and and some giros is that the it's you it's very hard to get a bad meal in Italy they even at, at the most unassuming place they'll always they'll always cook you a decent meal in France not so much the lowest level in France even stuff they would serve for riders before it was normal to bring a chef would be impossible to eat it would just be horrendous they take no pride in serving like decent cheap food missiles fired yeah i mean come on let's let's do a survey from anyone who's ever worked a grand tour i can't believe i might find myself in the position of having to defend french cuisine on on the cycling podcast you don't (laughs) don't. it's not possible really brian let's move on hello daniel and brian tim from australia here i'm loving this year's duro vigando even on the other side of the world it allows me to feel like i'm part of an italian road trip adventure but of course, very much missing Richard. My question might fall foul of the speculation police and the football analogy police. Nonetheless, I'm wondering about World Tour promotions and relegations. It seems inevitable that Alpes and Phoenix will be promoted to the World Tour, along with perhaps other teams. Therefore, someone must have to make way for them. In your opinion, which teams are at risk of relegation and could that have significant ramifications for some big name riders? For instance, I heard on Australian TV that Bike Exchange Jayco could be at risk. What might that mean for a Simon Yates, who is there now, or a Tom Dumoulin, who is rumoured to be going there? Thanks, and keep up the great work. World Tour promotion and relegation. Well, this is a thorny issue, if ever there was one. One that's quite difficult to get one's head around. I think some of the teams themselves have had a, a bit of a hard time understanding exactly what is going to happen next year the the bare bones the basic details are as followed so as of 2023 there are only going to be 18 world tour teams 18 positions up for grabs and who gets those 18 positions is going to be based on rankings from the combined 2020 to 2022 world rankings there will still be slots in the grand tours available for 
two further teams in the rankings, so the 19th and 20th place teams in the world rankings, they will automatically get into the 2023 Grand Tours. However, the, the top 18 in those rankings I mentioned over the last three years, their entitlement to be in the Grand Tours, to be in the World Tour, will last three years. So there are numerous teams who, in theory, might be in danger or might have an opportunity to get into the World Tour. There are teams that aren't in the World Tour, like Alpecin Phoenix, who um, look as though they have a really good chance. And there are teams that have always been in the World Tour, like Lotto Sudal, who currently look in danger and look in great peril. Um, we've been aware this year that teams, particularly those teams around the sort of relegation or promotion zones, have been kind of tailoring their race programs to the exigencies, the imperatives of this new ranking system, this new qualification system. We've seen Arkea Samsic have a rip-roaring start to the season, Anton Marché as well. Some of that has been very clever scheduling, targeting specific races, knowing, acknowledging that, for example, winning a pro series or a second-tier stage race is worth more than, say, a 10th place finish in the Tour de France, for example, putting the right riders in the right races. Now, looking at the ranking as we went into the Giro, just below the cut line were Israel Premier Tech and Lotto Sudar, whereas sort of punching above their weight were, as I said, a team like RKS Samsic, um, there are other teams, Uno X, are not out of the running. I think they were in 21st or 22nd position. Total Energy, who of course made a massive investment on Peter Sagan, they are currently below the cut line B&B hotels as well. In the question there that we had from Tim Wright, he mentioned the position of Bike Exchange. Now, before the Giro, as we went into the Giro, they were the very last team. They were um, above the cut line. They were 18th in terms of the rankings. Brian, are Bike Exchange in danger of being cut out of the World Tour next year, in your opinion? Your former team, of course. In my opinion, no. We're talking about an end-of-season ranking, so it doesn't really make sense speculating about that now. <coughs> They've won so far two stages here at the Giro. I'd be very surprised if they don't win at least one more. <coughs> and then they have other, I think, potential point-scoring riders for, for the latter part of the season. I'm, I'm a little bit torn about that relegation uh, system and also I'm a little bit you know it would have been a really unfortunate thing if if teams weren't able to do long term planning also with investing in young riders even investing more in young riders than established riders or riders who you'd be pretty sure would win bike races and it's always a balance when you do that and I think so that's one point another point is making yourself uh, investment worthy for a sponsor and usually before the thinking behind the world the what was then called the pro tour license now it's called world tour license was that if you had that license you you were assured a place among the best teams meaning that you got invites to the biggest races so a sponsor kind of knew what they were investing in and that's also now and you know it's, it's definitely in the gray area now and and it's it's definitely not the case that teams can pick and choose between sponsors so sponsors now actually have to analyze teams potential in a, in a very different way so i think that's there's something that disturbs that balance a little bit but also you know looking at it from the other side sport as we know in in, in football and soccer as, as you were it's you 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 need to win 
to be relevant, you need to win to be part of, of the biggest uh, tournaments, in, in this case, in the biggest races. So there's also that element. It's a very, very difficult balance to strike. That was a long answer for that first question, but just to, to round up my opinion about the system. I mean, I think it's interesting as a reflection of where the UCI thinks cycling is vis-a-vis also things like doping, because for a long time, exactly. in the worst, in the darkest times of the noughties, Anything that was sort of performance-related, results-related, the UCI conspicuously shied away from because they were very scared of incentivizing doping. And to have a system now which is so squarely, or it seems to be, I mean, there are still ethical criteria, um, you know, with the, the things like the conflict going on in, in Ukraine and Russia. If a Russian oligarch was to come in and invest in one of these teams, then, you know, there would certainly are. I'm sure be a conversation to be had even if you know the team that such a, an individual wanted to invest in was or had qualified but it is essentially an entirely results-based promotion and relegation system which as I say I think the UCI would have thought once twice three times four times about instituting up until very recently. Yeah and I think that's also the element of you know something that a lot of teams have struggled with or that cycling in general has struggled with you know there's no we don't cycling teams don't own stadiums they don't have a huge income from merchandise and they what they've really ultimately want is to create franchises not in the same way that football teams will have them because they don't own anything other than the you know when you have a, a world tour license that basically gives you the the right or the obligation to pay someone's salary and, and not much more than that so if you want to create a franchise, if you want to create long-term existing teams with steady sponsorship contracts, with like a, with a narrative that goes beyond the next six months, I'm not sure that this is really in favor of that system. Brian, next question. Hey, y'all. This is uh, Douglas from Knoxville, Tennessee, the Appalachian region of the eastern United States. And um, I had a question about um, attending uh, a, a grand tour. My partner and I have the opportunity to be in Europe this summer and are planning on catching a, a handful of stages of the tour while we're there, um, including uh, the, the time trial, opening time trial in Copenhagen, uh, the summit of Alpe d'Huez, and uh, of course the finish in Paris, and also the start of the Tour de France Femmes, which we're very excited about. Um, so my question, uh, I know it's different for journalists uh, being there, but I was curious as a, as a spectator if you had any insight or input to uh, what it's like to, uh, to be roadside for uh, a Grand Tour stage. Um, yeah, and uh, thanks again for uh, the coverage and uh, the, all the updates and interviews and culture of the races. It's, uh, I think it's some of the best sports journalism there is. Um, and, and on that note, I uh, send condolences on the loss of Richard. Um, I don't think I knew how much the cycling podcast in general and Richard meant to me until um, I read about uh, his passing. It was morning here in the States. And um, when I read the news uh, over breakfast, I, uh, I wept and uh, kind of realizing what the consistency of the cycling podcast and Richard's voice meant has meant over especially the COVID years has, uh, has been a lot. So thank you all for continuing um, the work. And again, my, my condolences. Thanks. Douglas from Knoxville, Tennessee. He's attending the Tour de France this year. He's going to Copenhagen, a place that you know very well. He's going to 
the he's going to Alpe d'Huez. He's going to finish in Paris, which will also be the start of the uh, Tour de France fam. Any tips for Douglas? Now, we've had this question before, and I always feel hopelessly ill-prepared for it because I've, n- I've very rarely been to watch a bike race as a as a spectator i've often driven past them and envied them um and thought that i'd like to be sitting on the side of the road with a cool box and uh, a beer and a nice panino but alas it's never really do that one day yes well you're pretty good at logistics and and i think the main issue i would highlight in that question is logistics really Copenhagen has not a lot of hotel rooms i don't think there's any hotel rooms left even for that uh for that first basically the, the Grand Depart that weekend and but the good thing is is that you know you can always maybe on Airbnb you can find somewhere but I would say like get your stuff booked if you haven't already start booking the restaurants it opens with a time trial in Copenhagen that really goes past all the the scenic and important places the historical places of Copenhagen so you can really be anywhere just head for where there's a lot of people and, and you usually go to see a bike race not to specifically see what's going on in the race but for the atmosphere, a bit like we do. So that's Copenhagen for you. LPS, there's a lot of logistics in going to see uh, the stage finish in LPS. It's a good choice because the atmosphere is fantastic. There's a lot of people. The, the races all would already ha- have been exploded at that point. You'll see riders that have been dropped. You'll see the front group. You'll see the race unfolding. Just think carefully about how early you get there and think about an exit, strate- exit strategy because it will take a long, old time to yeah, get down from that Do you know what again. I would do? But this is as someone who enjoys hiking, walking in the mountains. I would I would park my car if you're using a car or I would stay a, a valley or so away. There are various different options and I would turn it into a, a bit of a, an adventure, a bit of a, a hike. Probably the best way to get out of the, well, the vicinity of the race. If you're... Accessing Alpe d'Huez via Bourg d'Oisin, you are guaranteed to be caught up in a lot of traffic, a lot of people, which is maybe what you want. Um, maybe you want to enjoy the party for as long as possible. You can go to Alpe d'Huez and have a good time as early as two or three days before the Tour de France, particularly this year. Everyone, I think, is, has been starved of the opportunity to travel in the last couple of years. The, the Dutch always go and camp out early there. I think um, this year they'll probably go even earlier than ever and they'll be camped out on Dutch Corner and, and partying and playing terrible music and getting drunk exactly. three or four days, <laughs> three or four days out. Brian, we've been enjoying watching our audio diarists on this Giro d'Italia. James Knox, Pavel Sivakov and Ben Zvihoff, who is right in the thick of the GC battle, as is Pavel, Pavel Sivakov. Ben Zvihoff is one of Jai Hindley and Emmanuel Buchmann's key domestics here at the Giro. Throughout the course of this evening's press conference, we're going to be hearing well a bit of a, an, a synthesis of their, a bit of a highlights package of their second week at this year's Giro. The highs, the lows, the hopes, the dreams, what lies ahead for our three audio diaries. Cavendish is a little bit, a bit back. There is Ewan as well. Here comes Ewan left hand side. It's Gavidia. Gavidia going through the centre. But look at it on the right hand side. They're all going to line together. Oh my word. Kiss Paul has it, I think. Or was that Dainese? It might be Dainese. On the wow. line. Out of nowhere. This is Ineos Grenadiers rider Pavel Sivakov. Stage 9 finished, so uh, yeah, today was probably one of the hardest days we will have in the, in the Giro. Uh, 190k, 5000 meters of climbing, uh, brittle finish uh, at the blockhouse. Um, yeah, uh, really rough 
tough and rough yeah tough really tough climb i would say yeah no moment to rest if you misjudge your pacing or yeah you go too hard at some point you, you will pay it later so i think a pretty good day for us the start was was pretty hard uh we, we went actually up a climb straight away and we managed it well for us was about to not to to let uh, a dangerous break go up the road with uh, too many strong guys uh, and too big because the the goal for today was to to try and win the stage with Richard to set him off into the final climb. Good breakaway for us went at the beginning. We let Trek do the job and then we saw that uh, for them it wasn't it wasn't necessary to close the gap. So we took control and phew, everyone committed hundred percent. I'm super happy that we we have such a strong team here. For me, my my poor was in the beginning of the blockhouse. Uh, tried to bring uh, Rich and Richard into the steep part. Managed to do it, although I didn't feel super good today. Felt okay, I wouldn't say I felt bad, but felt okay. Richard finished third and a big part in the final climb, so I think we'll, we've done our best. Super tired, so I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have a rest day tomorrow. This is James Knox of Quick Step Alpha Vinyl. Adriatica, we went from uh, Pescara basically to Ancona before turning into the hills. Start of the day, flat, straight, 100k. Some Giro d'Italia sponsored train. Two in its horn at us constantly, frustrating. Got very, 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 very annoyed at it. Then we turned into the hills, suddenly got very hot, the wind from the sea, gone. A bit of confusion, wasn't sure if I was going to stay in the front or stay with Calf, but the decision was made to go and try and help Calf. Didn't work, that's life. Anyway, took care of him because today was a sprint day via Amelia Day. My old stomping ground in the start. Saw my old team manager, Flavio Zappi, for a little chat little hello little sip of his uh beer moretti which he tried to make me drink big tailwind 100k to bologna from sant'arcangelo de emilio uh, or whatever it's called something like that then into the lanes into the crosswind lot of stress big big fight big big stress didn't actually really do anything but never mind stress never stopped though Got pretty tired of it by the end. Um, last 30k couldn't really move up anymore. Road got some narrow roads in the finish actually, as we wound our way to uh, Reggio Emilia. Sprint finish and sort of a surprise winner with uh, Alberto Dainese. I'm always a bit disappointed. I think reflecting on some mistakes in the final, it's always difficult when there's limited chances at a bunch sprint. So yeah, a little bit downbeat. I'll be honest. Post stage, no, no one angry, no one upset. Just yeah, missed opportunity. But lovely, lovely Agro Turismo hotel outside uh, Reggio Emilia tonight. Got a farm, some uh, vineyards, selling their own pasta, olive oil, wine. Quite lovely, to be honest. And we passed halfway also. So yeah, start counting down now. Here we are um, in Savona now. Savona, however you say it. After stage into... Uh, Genoa, we went downhill today where Walter Whelan passed away 10 or more years ago, which is quite surreal to think about. But there's yeah a lot of stress just for GC teams concerned about someone accelerating or crashes, so they stay in front or fight to be in front for the start of descents. So that's, to be honest, that's the only thing that was sort of speeding up the peloton, just going faster and faster over the top of the climbs and then fighting for position again, start of climbs, main road into Genoa to finish across that bridge that collapsed five or six years ago with Matt Holmes in the back talking about imagine if we started racing down the M6 basically what it was joking to myself what a ridiculous finish this was and then we turned up into 
Genoa and it was beautiful boulevards to the line. It was really, really spectacular finish with the long dragging straight to the line, beautiful buildings and everything. I heard it was pretty rough and I mean, I just know the traffic's always a nightmare because I've been stuck here a couple of times, but impressions from uh, riding in was, yeah, it was lovely. Yeah, a bit better than Blackpool, isn't it? Hey, Cycling Podcast, Paolo here again. Another stage dawn, stage 13. Really beautiful day, starting on the coast in San Remo. I know the area quite well. Uh, I've spent some time training uh, down in Monaco with the, with the boys. Pretty strong breakaway, five riders. Yeah, then we only had one long climb, 10k at 6% today. Called, oh yeah, I don't remember the name. And then quite short downhill and mostly dragging down flat towards Cuneo. In my opinion, the, the sprint team did a bit of a mistake in the climb, letting the break go to like almost eight minutes and then they had to chase full full gas maybe they did it on purpose because they knew like it would um, maybe be a bit too hard for for the sprinters i don't know completely full gas i think i rarely done in race so fast uh my garmin told me the fast i've hit the fastest full 40k uh since i've got the garmin so <laughs> Since I'm pro, probably, I think he, we did 40k in 38 minutes. San Remo to Cuneo. Looked straightforward, at least in the beginning. We had a break of five guys. Um, some strong guys, including uh, Incon. Long time, 10, 11k and some rolling roads before it. Very hot. Trying to be controlled, trying to rise in easy, easy tempo with UAE, FDJ, Quickstep and Israel all controlling. Looking good. Three minutes ahead at the bottom of the climb. But the guys in front, tip my hat to them. They went hard up the climb, stretched the gap out to six and a half minutes. Tried to stay calm behind and accelerate over the top of the climb and down the descent. I had to start pulling immediately from the top of the climb. And there, yeah, things got pretty manic. We had a big gap to chase, six and a half minutes over the last 95k, I think it was. It was very, very hard to get it back. Something crazy like 56 and a half kilometers per hour for the last. 95k the stage for the for the guys in the peloton. Mike chopped off as hard as I could. For quite a long time there, but some kickers in the last like from 40k to go, 30k to go, started groveling backwards and then crawling back to the front for a couple more turns and then I think at 25, 20k to go, I never got back to the front. The boys, Seri was really strong. Mauro took over with some big turns and Ballero and Bert did what they could in the final. I think Bert also had to sacrifice himself before the lead out to continue closing the gap because yeah it was touch and go all the way and the guys in the front got caught I think 800 700 meters to go so yeah mental stage almost feel sorry for the guys in front if it wasn't for the fact that you know doing some high graph behind trying to bring it back um, and Demar was really impressive and so was the FDJ train so yeah I don't think Cavill was particularly disappointed with his own sprint just missed a little bit of the positioning yeah an extra man Morky, sadly, quite a day. He looks like he has the speed to get up to him. Aldani coming around him now. Alpacine Felix played their cards, but have they played them right? Still Aldani, still Aldani, goes to the line. Rota's catching though. It's Aldani who takes the win. Shoot, shoot at the du peloton. Cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. That's said PK, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by Noom, which at the very start... I thought was just a weight loss app, but actually it has subtly and quite significantly changed some of my eating habits for the better, I must say. Now, having lost quite a lot of weight over the last six months, I was very interested to see what sort of impact two weeks on the road, eating all the lovely Italian food and drinking the wine would have on my weight. 
and I knew that I wouldn't use the new map in quite the same way while I was away. I wasn't going to take a set of scales with me and weigh in every morning and I wasn't going to bother trying to guess how many calories were in everything I was eating. It's very difficult to do when you're eating in restaurants and service stations so I didn't think it was worth bothering with that because I'd just be guessing the numbers. But what I found was that my appetite has changed significantly and I was really embracing the Italian way of eating. Rather than having loads of food to eat at dinner time, I would pick either the first course and the second course or the antipasti and the first course. So I'd pick and choose. And the Italian way of eating is, it strikes me, much more balanced. It gave me the opportunity to try lots of different things, but in quite small quantities. Certainly their portion sizes are much smaller than I'm used to in UK restaurants. Anyway, I was very interested when we checked into a hotel midway through the Giro to find a set of scales in the bathroom in my room and I got on them and found that having set off for the Giro weighing 72 kilos, I weighed 71.9 after a week or so and then I got home and this morning weighed myself for the first time 72.2 kilograms. So basically I've maintained the same weight over two weeks despite being on the road despite eating in restaurants every day and I put that down to the fact that Noom has just helped me make better choices it's helped me alter quite significantly but without compromising on enjoyment the types of food I was eating particularly in between meals if you'd like to sign up for a trial of Noom go to noom.com cycle that's noom.com cycle noom.com slash cycle ciao a tutti al cycling podcast this is alan in Oxfordshire, scotland my race day question to you is on the subject of breakaways can you recall any examples from the giro or any grand tour where the break is caught by the peloton quite late but one of the original protagonists then goes on to win the stage from the bunch anyway uh, i can't myself but perhaps you could Anyway, thanks for all your hard work and entertaining insights. Grazie e buon lavoro. Matthew Heyman sort of did it in Paris-Roubaix a few years ago, but in Grand Tours we were struggling to remember any such instance. There have been attacked, there have been riders who have attacked and been absorbed and been, and been gobbled up and then won. I think Primoz Roglic has done that a couple of times in the Vuelta a España. I can't think of anyone who's done it at the Giro or the Tour, but that, that might just be my memory not serving me You thought me Mads Pedersen may have done it in a smaller yeah, race? Yeah, I think I remember something of him attacking. It was an earlier race this year, and it would be quite typical for him because he's ridiculously strong when he's in shape. So there, would, there, would, there could have been something that he would do. But in the Grand Tour, it takes completely... I mean, that it's one thing being strong, but at the Grand Tour, if you were attacking and then being caught and still winning, I, I, not a lot of people can do that in the Grand Tour. Good friend of the podcast, Julian here from Surrey in the UK. Firstly, I'm extremely grateful for your excellent coverage of the Giro, which is such a wonderful tonic to the daily grind. Thoughts are with you and all the team. One of the aspects of racing I've enjoyed recently is seeing the smaller teams compete, whether that's Lucky Lorenzo's win last year on the Stelvio, Intermarche punching above their weight with Gourmet and friends, or Roald Arnie yet again showing Alpes in a more than just a one-man band. However, as Quebec's sad demise shows, teams are operating in a precarious environment. Given cycling has a complex, fragmented governance structure, is there anything more that can be done to help the smaller teams? I'm not sure what's feasible. For example, I'm not sure if a salary cap would help or how it would work. 
but wonder if a loan scheme could be set up to help level the playing field. Keep up the great work. Julian doesn't mention it here, but we've talked before, and I think it's maybe worth revisiting, the theme of transfers, a transfer system in professional cycling. No such formalised system does exist. However, informally, there are certain teams, certain team managers, who have almost created their own transfer system. Um, our old friend Gianni Savio is one of them. I mentioned in the podcast in Genova a few days ago that a little mustachioed canary had told me that Natneo Tesfazion might be the latest rider to sign for a World Tour team, possibly with that particular team having paid a clausula liberatoria, what do you call it in English? Um, paid the release clause on Tesfazion's salary, oh sorry, on his contract. Um, but Gianni has had a lot of success with this in the last seven or eight years. I don't know how significant the sums are. We joked a little bit a few years ago when Egan Bernal left for Sky. And Gianni had some kind of, some kind of bonus written into the, that deal where if Egan won the Tour de France, if Bernal won the Tour de France, Gianni was going to get a payout. I think we joked at the time that it was millions. Well, knowing full well that it, it wasn't, I think we were talking more hundreds of thousands. And the fees themselves, well, generally the the remainder of the contract is paid out and there might be a little bit on top. Do you think, Brian, have you ever had any experience in your time as a team manager, press officer? Have you ever been party, privy to any of these kind of deals? Where Yeah, I've, I've seen it happen. There isn't a, a transfer system, but technically, if you look at the UCI regulations, it can be done if all three parts, the former team, the rider, and, and the team the, the rider's going to. have done it a few times as well. Well, they've let riders go, or had to let riders go, and the the buying team, the purchasing team, the receiving team. Some would call it a something. diaspora, really, wouldn't they? <laughs> is it a legitimate business model? Could are the revenue stream is the revenue stream significant enough to really change someone's budgetary outlook? Probably short, not. Short answer, no. And I don't think it would. Could they ever be? I I don't think so. And coming back to the question. Um, for a lot of good reasons, you really have to treat your riders well. If you're a development team or if you're a smaller team, for them, if they if they reach a certain level, for them to stay in it. I don't. I'm not always sure that it's that it's just about the money. I think you have if you have a good operation as a small team, other young emerging riders will come if they hear that they're being treated well and they have good development possibilities. And I think there's a reason why small teams work is because there are people who invest their heart and soul in them it's because the sponsors support them even in even more difficult times so there's a reason why not all teams are equal in that sense and, and there's there's a fairness sometimes and i'm not saying that's always the case one thing that disturbs that balance a little bit and and i'm not sure if that's a problem or not i personally don't think so but a lot of the big teams they have development teams and as much as you'd like to think that that's because they're really nice people and they want to develop riders, it's also a way for them to save money if they're able to assure, assure that riders, they don't always, but assure the riders will stay as, as part of the feeding chain. It doesn't really work in cycling though, does it? We've seen it many times. BMC had a development team and they were, yeah, uh, and, and those riders were picked up. D <laughs> Some would argue that this has been DSM's undoing. They've, yeah. they've groomed, they've cultivated, they've created lots of stars. So if they've been picked off, I remember... Bob Stapleton lamenting the same thing at HTC. You know, they would create these. And I've these seen I've seen that happen as well. Even still, I I think it's a good thing that those the big teams they should definitely also try and invest in women's cycling. Then they should try and invest in in a development team. But ultimately, this is not about 
teams. This is about individual athletes, career, and what works best for them. Ultimately, that's really what, what is the heart of the matter. I think when, when you look at sports, when you look at cycling specifically, which there's, you know, there's a decent amount of money in, in this sport, but not that much compared to other sports. Ultimately, this is about individual riders making the best choices for their own career, not what's best for the teams, in my opinion. Hello, chaps. Brendan from Dublin here. I'm really enjoying the coverage of the Giro. It's not the same without Richard, but your Giro del Buffalo is a lovely feature. My question is, how can a team as wealthy and as professional as Ineos not protect their star rider from having a disastrous crash while training? Surely they could provide enough support to guard against their leader being involved in what was a preventable collision. Only last week I heard on another podcast, sorry, that Adam Yates had a minor spill at the Altitude camp in Tenerife. It was minor, but it could have been more serious. I just don't understand why they don't pay more attention to this, and I'd love to know what you have to say about it. Thanks. Brian, talking of teams with big budgets, how can Ineos have such an enormous budget yet not be able to protect their star riders while training? Riders still crashing on the open road. I think you kind of said the answer in the question. It is an open road. And unfortunately, accidents happen because you're training in the middle of traffic sometimes. Often, you know, riders know that they're not... They're not obviously not going places in rush hour. They're not. Tr- they're trying not to use roads that are busy or dangerous, but that can be difficult at times. And unfortunately, accidents do happen. And I think more accidents potentially would happen if teams followed their riders in in cars driving slowly, you know, or with the hazard lights on, or tried to stop traffic because training was there. You know, if there was a group of riders, so it that would cause a lot of frustration. And traffic really is a compromise. Everyone needs to look out for each other. And blaming Ineos for for his crash, uh, to me, I'm I'm really sorry, and I appreciate the question, but I think it's nonsense. A few times I have seen things that have made me wince slightly, like practicing lead out trains on open roads. That always makes me a little bit nervous when I see footage of that. Yeah, but I mean, but riders on time trial bikes. I mean, we had this this kind of fatuous point idea that time trial bikes should be banned after Bernal's crash. Famously, uh, Mario Cipollini was training prior <laughs> to the Worlds under Superstrada super behind a smart car. Depending on who you speak to about this incident, I have spoken to various people about it over the years. He was going anything between 70 kilometers an hour and 350 kilometers an hour on a bike. Yeah, it's <laughs> cheaper, isn't it? <laughs> well, Brian... I think it's time to hear a little bit more from our audio diarists. Stage 14 done. Pavel Sivakov. What a day. What a day, really. That was that was tough. I mean, I suffered from the start. I wasn't feeling great. I think we, we did a pretty good job. Uh, we controlled the break pretty well. That was the plan. And then the plan was to take it over. Uh, basically, what to do what Bora did. But uh, chapeau to them. They just blew the race apart. Especially in the downhill, I would say they, they went really hard up the climbs, but then in downhill there was a big splits. I was there in the first gr- in the front group at the bottom of Superga. But yeah, I just just didn't have the legs to follow. I tried to convince myself that I was I was good and maybe you know everyone is is hurting at that moment. But yeah, no, I just uh, just exploded. Richard, what a day! I mean, it was not the the best for us to have him a little bit isolated in the front. Um, that's why I'm like I was not so so happy with my performance because I should have been there. Uh, but yeah, Dean just didn't have the legs. But yeah, oh, he's he's a big fighter. He's a really good fighter, and 
yeah, it's actually impressive how he pulls out. It's like always determined. Took the pink, so now it's kind of another race for us. And we are in a good situation. We know how to do that. We, we've got the strength. Ben Zwiehoff rides for Bora Hansgrohe. Cheers, guys. Thanks for cheering us today. It was a really epic stage. I mean, we we really had a plan. Yeah, I think this plan was not like only developed today. I think we had it already a few days ago in mind to to ride aggressively. Everybody worked his heart out today for the team. This is, I think, one of the situations yeah, where you really can, can uh, gain some confidence and gain some, some trust in yourself and in, in, in the team. And that's what we made today. I'm so, so proud um, of everybody involved in this, in, this, uh, in this situation. This is really crazy. Nobody was really expecting that we do it like this today. And yeah, then in the end, how Vilko, Emu, Jai finished it off is pure class. So far, we can be really proud of, of this Giro and of our team performance. I really hope that we can stick to this spirit and we, we finish it off. He's returned the favor and Simon Yates wins stage 14. Bonus seconds going with him. Here goes Hindley. Hindley to the line. He'll take second place and Hindley will gain seconds back on the man who's just moved into the Maglia Rosa. Simon Yates wins the stage. Jai Hindley finishes second. And third is Richard Carapaz, who takes the Maglia Rosa off the back of Juan Pedro Lopez. Yeah, I was, I was a bit worried after yesterday that today would be a bit of a disaster because it was a good stage on paper for me. James Knox. Started in front from kilometre zero because we had some narrow roads in the start and thought there was a chance that we could just roll off the front and immediately the road be blocked. But yeah, in the end it turned out into a massive fight all the way into the first climb. Where the race just kept going and going, there was a, a move that Mauro was in, there was a couple of moves that Maori was in that looked like they were gone and then eventually over the first categories of the climb of the day, I think roughly eight guys went and I managed to jump across with uh, Nons Peters and a couple of guys came sort of on the back of me as well and that was it, we had a bit of an advantage just looked like it was settling down, gap up to 240 and then yeah I think Bora did a big acceleration coming into the circuit, coming into the, in hindsight, or taking that far to go, was pushing more and more into sort of GC stage territory but it was worth uh, going for the break, get up the road, see what could happen but um, as soon as he came storming past, I got 100 metres up Superga in my group, before the, the first guys there was bodies everywhere as well, I think it was like a group of 15, a group of 15, Groups of 10 and 5 that were passing me, but yeah, they passed me 100 metres up and they were just going completely different speed. So knew pretty much instantly that to fight and survive there for one minute wasn't particularly worth it. And mentally also pretty difficult to try at that moment. So yeah, just sort of took my own rhythm, found a nice group, got dragged along for the first lap. And then, yeah, to be honest, last lap I was broken also, really hot. And a little bit depressing to think how much faster we were going in front. Um, and how far, how much more climbing legs I needed there to be in front, but uh, give it a go anyway. Can't be disappointed with that. Bravo here. Whew, that's it. Second, uh, second week of the Giro Dawn. Had a little tumble on the second day of the week. But yeah, felt pretty good throughout the week, to be honest. Uh, I was really looking forward to the weekend, especially uh, to yesterday, to today. 
unfortunately yesterday i think looking back at it now uh, i really suffered from the heat i mean today i went out and uh, yeah felt great it was quite controlled i mean it was a really fast start comparable to yesterday to be honest and then yeah then it was kind of climbs that suit me much better but uh, i have to say that you know just nowadays with all the measurable stuff we have uh, like power heart rate I could see that um, that yeah the power was back I could hold uh, my, my normal power my usual power compared to yesterday where I, I really struggled I mean also without looking at the power just the legs the legs were really sore The Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Giro d'Italia is supported by Science and Sport. Science and Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science and Sport for sponsoring the Cycling Podcast. If you'd like to get 25% off everything at scienceandsport.com, use the discount code SISCP25 and give the Beta Fuel range a try. It's not just a drink, but also gels and a chewy bar. Beta fuel is basically packed with carbohydrate and has been tested famously by Chris Froome during his 80 kilometer solo ride on stage 19 of the 2018 Giro d'Italia. The idea is that you can sustain high performance intensity with lower perceived effort all the way to the finish line by consuming more carbohydrate per hour with no stomach upset. That's the key thing when it comes to fueling on the bike. You want to be able to eat the food and not have any unwelcome effects. Certainly don't want a Tom de Moulin style incident by the side of the road, as Daniel, I'm sure, would agree. Go to scienceinsport.com and use the discount code SISCP25 for 25% off. Hi guys, it's Andy from a little place outside Not Watford called St Albans. First of all, I just wanted to say how great the Emeritera show was on Saturday evening. The music, their performance and the crowd were all amazing. A couple of questions on the logistics of the podcast How much technical equipment do you carry around with you to record the pod? Do you get stressed about the availability of Wi-Fi at the end of the day to upload the files? And how much editing do the producers have to do? Brian, you you having observed Lionel and me over the last few days, perhaps you can answer that. What equipment do you carry around? Well, it's very minimalist. I I feel like I shouldn't demystify things too much, but we have a Zoom, the, the company that I think most... Um, or one of the companies that radio journalists, radio um, networks use, or they use their hardware, um, it's called Zoom, Not nothing to do with the remote meeting software. And yeah, I carry the little Zoom recorder around, which is also the equipment with which I do my interviews, a laptop, um, sometimes a, a mobile phone, and that's about it. That's about it. It's pretty pared down and lo-fi, I would say. Brian, have you seen any stress, any panic? Um, Not as much as I would experience if I was in charge of the technology. No, and I really mean that. You you make it look very easy, which I'm I'm, I'm pretty sure it is not at times, especially because of the logistics. Brian's only been here two days. I'm already like completely worn out. Brian, let's hear from John in Baltimore. I have a question about the Dolomites. I've heard Daniel say that the heart and soul of the Giro is in the Dolomites. And for me, as a relatively newcomer to the sport and following professional racing, I've really loved when the Giro is down in Sicily and down in the south of Italy. So my question is, why why do the Dolomites hold such a special place in your view, um, Daniel, and maybe Brian too, if you can shed some light on this. 
Thanks, guys. Amazing coverage. Well, one of the great debates, or one of the great kind of dichotomies you hear people talk about in Italy, as well as the dichotomy of the North and the South, and whether you like the North and the South, whether you're from the North or the South, is whether you're a, a marinaio or a montanaro, whether you're a sea lover or someone from the sea or someone from the mountains, I'm very much a montanaro, or you're a marinaio, I think. You live in Pietrasanta, very close to the sea. I know you've got a lovely a staycation planned um, in, in a couple of weeks. You're just going to be going back and forth from your house to the Marina di Pietrasanta, just a couple of kilometers away. I would not, if I was you, be doing I'd be heading up to the Appen Alps if I was in your shoes. To do what? Uh, just to just to rewild, rewild. But on the Dolomites, um, well, words do not really do them justice, John. However, I will quote another, I'll quote a, a couple of illustrious former, well, illustrious writers that I quoted in one of my books about mountains um mountain high and mountain higher which came out a long time ago now um john murray wrote about the dolomites in in his handbook for travelers in southern germany written in 1837 sometimes they take on the appearance of towers and obelisks divided from one another by cracks some thousand feet deep at others the points are so numerous and slender that they put one in mind of a bundle of bayonets or sword blades Altogether, they impart an air of novelty and sublime grandeur to the scene, which can only be appreciated by those who have viewed it. Well, exactly. It's very difficult to explain, very difficult to describe how splendid and how imposing and awesome Dolomites are. If you've not been there, another author, Alexander Robertson, a lot of Scotsmen seem to have written about the Dolomites. He was the author of 1903 book, Through the Dolomites. What Venice is among cities, these Dolomites are among mountains. In line and colour, form and behaviour, they are unlike other mountains. They resemble re- over which may have broken throughout long ages the billows of an angry ocean. Brian, as a non-Montanaro, what do you appreciate? What do you love about the Dolomites? I remember when I was in Valgardena the first time, at least the first time where it was a clear day. And I remember thinking, this is one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. How The Dolomites are, are so much more dramatic than any other chain of mountains I've seen in, in Europe. There's, there's just a contrast between the lushness and how really dramatic and cliff-like they are. And it, it really challenges your the perspective you have for distance because on a clear day you can see a lot of details even if it's, it's still quite far away and very, very high. It's just a sight like no other. It's And, and I've, I've talked to writers also about this and there's just something about the Dolomites that's just very, very different and, and more attractive than, than, than others and I think that's also if you go to the Alps in France for instance I find them to be at least the places where you can stay and the atmosphere to be a little bit I would almost say off-putting in, in the summer and it's worn down ski stations there's not much going on people don't really go there the, the, and, yeah. the, and in Pyrenees at least people live there so they're like they're not like you know they're, they're real communities which I don't really find in the Alps in the same way the Dolomites are just really they're stunning in a different way and they're, they're just a part first of all it's, it's Italy obviously and they're just sort of they, they blend in well with the culture and the people who live there and it's, it's not it's not just about it's not just a ski resort it's actually a real community with real people yeah i mean one thing about the dolomites i can imagine appeals to you is the fact that the the, it really showcases the best of two worlds two cultures 
um, a sort of Germanic culture and everything one associates, all the positive stereotypes one, one imagines, one thinks of um, when one talks about Germanic culture, the cleanliness, the efficiency, hygiene and so on and so forth, but also some of the, some of the life, some of the spirit, some of the vivacity of Italy and that contrast you talked about, I mean, it's also a physical contrast of the landscape. You talked about the, you know, the, the, the green, the emerald, inviting, soft contours of the bases of the Dolomite Mountains and these jagged, these grey, jagged, um, luminous, particularly in the evening, cliffs, effectively, that sort of sprout from these gorgeous, um, the, these gorgeous green mountainsides. It's a very, very special place. I mean, I'm going on holiday there up to Tyrol um, after the Dauphiné. And it, it comes a little bit in stages also, because if you have the lower slopes of the Dolomites, you have a certain type of scenery and agriculture. If you go a little bit further up, it's different. It's, it's, it's really, there's so much to experience there from, from the minute if you take the train or drive a car, you know, up towards the pass of the Brennero. And you really see that, how you see them come closer and closer, how it's just, the light changes completely how they will meet your eye it's i'm not a i'm definitely a montanaio but but i'll i will always happily go to dolomites i'm very much looking forward to it as well later this week well and just on the finally on the point uh, about the heart and soul of the jury being located in the dolomites i mean i've been saying in the car the last couple of days brian that i regret the fact that the jury doesn't lean in even deeper, um, even more to the Dolomites, and because they are unique, you know, the Alps are shared with, and the Dolomites are a sub-range of the Alps, but the, the Dolomites are, are really, they're, they're exclusive to Italian. When we think about the, the mythical Dolomite passes, they're exclusive to Italy, and they are a UNESCO World Heritage Site. We talked yesterday with Mauro Vegni, or in our Kilometer Zero, we talked with Mauro Vegni about his dream of having a Giro d'Italia plotted around all the UNESCO heritage sites, and I just feel that the, the the final week the the bulk of the final week should really be concentrated in dolomites there should not be one big dolomite tap on there there should be two or three especially also now that you know which i i really see as a positive thing that the geo finishes in verona which is just around it's the corner perfect, really it's the foot of the full yeah. of the foot of the dolomite so it, it would make perfect sense to to do a great final weekend even starting on the thursday in the dolomites next question hello Cycling podcast. This is Turgrim from uh, Oslo, Norway. Daniel, what's gone wrong at Arsenal? No, you spoke on the previous press conference about uh, your favorite riders. I'd like to add another name to that list. Alexander Vino Vinogro. Vino, whenever he showed up, he showed up to race. He wanted to make a race. Whenever he pinned on a number, it was exciting. He looked good on the bike. I have no illusions as to the chemical preparations that he undertook to make those races exciting. So my question is, is there a lack of pantomime villains in today's uh, bunch? And if there are any pantomime villains, who are they? Is there a cartoon villain of the peloton nowadays? There's certainly no... Well, there'll never be another Alexander Vinokurov, will there? Let's hope not. <laughs> uh, that was Brian Nygaard. Um, if you want to contact him, he can um, he can be reached at... What's the Danish dialing code? Plus... Plus four five. Plus but four I haven't five. had a Danish number for a very long time. So. A few candidates. Janni uh, Moscon, of course, for well-publicized reasons. Various unsavory incidents that he's been involved in 
Nasser Bouani as well has been involved in a few unsavoury incidents. I happen to quite like Nasser Bouani as a rider. A, a slightly more left field choice, Remco Venepool. I, I know there are, there are certain sections of the press and public who take umbrage at his. Well, that, not so much anything Remco does, but more the, the, the hype that's been created around Remco, what he is seen to represent this precocious, prodigious child star, which rubs people, some people up the wrong way. And the fact that he's very emotional, he doesn't, probably he's too young to be in complete command of his emotions. Um, that offends some people's sensibilities. Does it offend yours? No, not really, because I... I make allowances for his youth. I make allowances from where he's from, Belgium. I make allowances for the the amount of hype there is around him. He's not a, a rider. I think we're all very, very sensitive to the aesthetics of bike riders, how they look on a bike. And in some cases, things like the, the phonetics of their name and and, you know, could also be other aesthetic factors the hairstyle the way they you know the, the, how long their legs are and you know how that makes them look when they're riding the bike and Remco is not someone that I immediately take to I must say but I certainly wouldn't cast him as a villain yet he's certainly someone who's added um, something to professional cycling in an age when there aren't that many sort of open hostilities between riders and we always notice this at the Giro d'Italia because if there was any race in the world that was characterised by petty rivalries brick bats at the end of stages um, phony wars in the press it was the Giro d'Italia generally it was it was conflicts between Italians and we've seen so little of that over the last few years they all play so nicely together and I don't think Remco has rubbed up too many other riders the wrong way, but there is the potential for that with him. Yeah, I agree. I think there's there's a, there's certain potential for that. He's still so young, and I don't think you can't really demand of anyone in, at that age to have be fully developed, at least personality-wise. And it's, he's not in an easy situation being a Belgian rider. That's just better than than a lot of riders we've seen in the in the, in the last decades. I, I, I for one, I haven't really grown to to like him but that's I think that's based on the fact that I I don't I've never met him I don't know him I can form my opinion about what the vibe he oozes and that's not really my thing I mean it's a bit but like being a Montanaro or yeah, a Marinaio yeah exactly and, and, personal, isn't it? and I think also it's the same thing with really with artists or great writers I have a great veneration for Céline the French writer but he's certainly not one that I would go on a camping holiday with if I was ever to do that. I like Morrissey. I will not go on a camping holiday. I can't see you on a camping holiday anymore. Oh, I wouldn't even go on a luxury holiday with Morrissey, even if he's one of my favorite songwriters. So that, I mean, the beauty of cycling is that people can't hide their personalities. And that's one thing that I really like about this sport. So you really get, you, you get a sense of who they really are because you watch them for such a long time and you see what they're able to do. And often their personality reflects on how they, they ride bikes. So that's probably why we focus on that quite so often. Hello, Daniel. Hello, Brian. And um, farewell to uh, Lionel, who's hopefully safely en route now back to not Watford. Um, first of all, Nick Clark here, friend of the podcast from County Kildare in Ireland. And firstly, I just wanted to say how much I'm loving the coverage of the Giro d'Italia, which I know has been made under the most difficult of circumstances. And thank you to each of you and to your backroom team as well for for um, for the great coverage. It's really much appreciated. I have a quick question, and it's about whether the 
um, bike manufacturer is actually of any importance in the in the pro teams. I mean, I know it was discussed previously that um, Bike Exchange had switched manufacturer to Giant, I think it was this season. And I'm just wondering, does it actually matter what bike manufacturer um, a team has? And if it does, is there a pecking order in, in teams, you know, in, in, in the bike manufacturers? Thanks very much. Well, Brian, welcome back. Another opportunity to upset some people here. Um, is, is the bike supplier an important factor in a team's success or failure? Is there a pecking order? Is there a well-known, well-acknowledged hierarchy of which bike manufacturer is making better frames? Um, and it, which wheel manufacturer makes faster wheels, more resilient, more more durable wheels? Um, what would you say? I've got some ideas about this. It's quite a difficult issue to talk about because we do hear things all of the time about this and it's so subjective. There are a lot of biases. There are a lot of interest commercial interest even on the part of riders that you know they've got a vested interest in saying certain bikes and certain wheels are better than certain other bikes and wheels but what's your immediate response to this question there's a lot to be said about that and one thing that's changed a lot is that bike manufacturers are now at a financial level where they can take on a relatively large part of a team's budget they could potentially even own a team and i think that's I think that's quite important. And when people say, oh, you know, what does it matter to us that, you know, really expensive bikes are, are being produced? Every time there's new technology in cycling, it, it will, it's a good chance it'll end up in the hand of the just everyday, you know, the guy or, or the weekend girl. warrior. Yeah, exactly. So, so I think there's a lot of good things to be said about that, including helmets and, you know, disc brakes. And there's a lot of good innovation, innovation happening that way. I've worked on teams where the bike manufacturers had a, a big say in in how the operation was run. I've worked in teams where the material, according to some riders, wasn't really up to scratch. I've even I started so early that there would still be sometimes a frame that wasn't from the bike rider, sorry, the the bike manufacturer that it was supposed to be, and they would just change the the stickers as you were you know so a lot has happened in that sense but i really feel now you know it's not just when they introduced this, the the minimum weight of 6.8 kilos i think there, there was a there was a period in the uci where they were very especially on the pet McQuaid, very anti-technological and that has changed a lot over the last years which i believe is a good thing and now when you see how big a part aerodynamics play in even normal road stages you really see that it has an influence on the performance and that's a that's a good reason why riders want the best possible materials because it takes away the edge of their performance if they not if they don't have material that's up to par with their immediate competitors there's such a sort of cross-pollination of knowledge now between you know riders and specialists moving from one team to another and also people within the bike manufacturers moving from one place to another that they all pretty much know what what each other is working on or developing or has produced and so the margins i think are relatively small um i think if you if you pay close attention to interviews with riders team managers over a season and if i pay close attention to what people also tell me off the record certain messages do come through fairly loud and clear there's been a, a long period the last few years when i've consistently heard that specialized bikes are if not the fastest, then among the fastest in the peloton. I think it's been noticeable this year, listening to 
riders from your old team, Brian Bike Exchange, that they're very happy to be on giant bikes this year. With they're very happy with the the change that they were on Bianchi last year. Um, but as I say, I think the the margins are small, and I believe that three or four years ago, there were certain manufacturers that. You know, I had lots of stories of riders just noticing, particularly on descents, um, things like that, particularly you know, maybe heavier riders for whom uh, rolling resistance and tyres are more important, sort of either, either boasting and, and celebrating the fact that they were going much quicker than, than other riders or the, the reverse, the, the opposite, and, and, and watching riders simply move away from them on descents and not really being able to find any explanation for this other than the bike technology or the equipment technology it's worth mentioning now that we're in italy a very significant thing i think that's happened over the last 10 years is that there's no longer divide between the anglo-saxon bike manufacturers and the italian ones which i think technologically there has been a lot changed when uh, sky at the time chose pinarello over specialized or potentially over any other bit they had for a, a bike sponsorship and that has I think collectively that choice has changed Italian bike manufacturing for, for good they are now you know the, the past two years the tour has been won on not just an Italian designed bike Colnago but also on, on a, a Campagnolo group set which is unheard of I remember it wasn't it was probably say like yeah, 10 years ago, it was only the smaller French teams that were riding some of the Italian frames and, and, the, and the Italian manufacturers still had like this nostalgic approach to it. We've, we've, we've made bikes for the great tour winners. No one is supposed to tell us how you make bikes. And, and if you're up against technologically based American companies that do a lot of research, that do a lot of, they really look into carbon fiber manufacturing and how the layups are made, you will lose a competitive edge. But I think it's not really the case anymore. It's definitely not as binary or black and white. That There's been a massive change in how the Italian bike producers have approached being at a competitive level. I would also say, though, that the, the narrative underlying that is not necessarily one of underdogs, artisans against a new world, technologically advanced, very heavily well-funded, whether it's Americans or also new world companies because Colnago is now owned by uh, Abu Dhabi domiciled investment fund Pinarello has a lot of foreign investment as well so I think the sources of capital in some in some cases or in a lot of cases are similar broadly yeah similar. I mean they've, they've gone from being as as often as the case in Italy family business generations of of knowledge and, and know-how being handed down to now being forced to be competitive both at the high-end market and in the mid-range Hello Daniel and Brian, this is Kasper from Denmark. Um, I have a question regarding the Giro 2020 because I'm a, I'm a really huge fan of uh, Tau Gegenhardt and, and always when we talk about the Giro you always said that it was the, the lockdown edition and, uh, and that, uh, and that the, the peloton wasn't that, that good and, and like it was a, an, an easy win for Tau Gegenhardt and I'm I'm just I'm not I'm not agree because we we had both Nibali we had yeah we had Jaron Thomas we had um, we also had Fulsang at the start line and even though some of these riders top riders they they went out of the back door maybe because of crash they still was at the start line so 
I'm just curious what what makes it what makes a a win in the Grand Tour a more prestigious prestigious win than than another. Thank you for an excellent show. I don't think we do. I don't think we ever have. Um, a lot of other people have raised questions about the relative level of that Giro d'Italia. I think every decade or every seven or eight years in the Giro, traditionally, you've had riders win the race who would not ordinarily have been considered favourites or Galacticos at that particular time. Um, rider Heijdal, I think, is a good example. Teo may have been a good example by virtue of the fact that well, it was very early in his career. It, it was unexpected. He, I don't think he realistically believed he was in contention until about halfway through the race. Geraint Thomas had crashed out early on. So I think that was what was that was quite unusual about that Giro. I think by the time the pressure had probably started to ramp up and ratchet up, there was only a week of racing left, and it was a it was a question of negotiating a time trial and three or four or two time trials and three or four mountain stages against Jai Hindley and Tay ultimately came out on top. But I think when I've spoken to team directors, physiologists, experts about the relative level of that Giro d'Italia, it certainly stands comparison. It bears up to to others in terms of how difficult the course was. And for, for all we know, a week out from the finale of this Giro d'Italia in Verona, we could be seeing the confirmation, the consecration of a rider who emerged in that Giro, Jai Hindley. I also think there's a wrong assumption in that perspective. If it was only about numbers, if it was only about people's ultimate potential physical ability, everyone could just stay at home and be on the turbo trainers and they could have a competition about who could ride the highest amount of watts over a certain amount of time and a gradient. So every Grand Tour is different and, and there's, all, there's a lot of other factors that go into winning a Grand Tour. And for me, it was a great race. It was also... A, maybe down to the fact that it was a race in you know in the era of you know still in the shadows of covid and italy was really did a good job at like keeping it together for that race and anyone anyone and i guarantee you this and i will make that assumption at any given point anyone who wins a grand tour is an amazing absolute champion and they can i'm sorry to say they can only race the people who are there they can only beat the people who are there but if they win they'll be standing on the shoulders of every other champion who's done the same. Brian, we've got to our last question, and it came from Ewan Wilson. Hello, Daniel and Brian. I am Ewan Wilson from the Cycling Day YouTube channel, calling in from Lyon, France. As you both know, this Giro d'Italia will be finishing in Verona. This city is synonymous with one thing, Shakespeare. Whether it be Romeo and Juliet or the two gentlemen of Verona, I'm sure we are about to be washed away with references to Shakespeare. Cycling itself has a Shakespearean element to it, the narratives we see, the characters we follow, not to forget the dramatic theatre of the Dolomites, the Alps, or even the Veronese city streets. Even the concept of a Grand Tour opening with a prologue feels like a sharp-witted reference to Shakespeare. So here's my question. If you were to compare this Giro d'Italia with a Shakespearean play, which one would it be? Are we bracing ourselves for betrayal, empire, or loss in the final week of this Corsa Rosa? Thank you guys for your fantastic work. I enjoy tuning in over my morning coffee. However, there's no chance I'm dipping my breakfast focaccia into my coffee. Grazie guys again and viva il bufalo. This Giro is a Shakespeare play. Well, there are several obvious options, obvious analogies on two gentlemen of Rona. Who are the two gentlemen of Rona going to be? Is it going to be Jai Hindley and Richard Carapaz? Potentially, potentially. I would like to see uh, an outsider unfold himself being Michelanda. 
I think that there's the wow, last. What would, who wouldn't? What Shakespearean character would Michael Lander be? At two Lander? Yeah, that's a good question. I actually haven't thought about that. But I do like that he's sort of he's the designated outsider in in any grand tour, but he's also an anti-hero because there's always something standing in his way. If Michael Lander was to win, this is a point that I think I made a couple of years ago with Thibaut Pinot, the 2019 Tour de France. If he was to win, would that ruin the? Would it ruin the joke? Would it ruin the narrative? Would it shatter the the mystique of the perennial sort of nearly man and the pathos that there is that exists around Mikel Lander as it did around Thibaut Pino? Yeah, it would. But I would be extremely happy if if it was the case. You know, he's worked really hard and he's always he definitely always starts out in in he looks like someone who's quite ready always to to perform well in Grand Tour. Estos Thibaut uh, Thibaut Pino, I, I would absolutely love to see also Thibaut Pino win a Grand Tour. I'm I'm worried that it might not happen, but I would be the first to to celebrate it. Who will be the protagonist in the comedy of errors? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a, that's another good question. I was you know when you go through all the um, the various Shakespeare plays, you know, and you, if you add them to the context of a gra- context of a grand tour, you it, you see similarities. You know, in, you can't say that. That Carapace is, will be uh, Richard Carapace will be Richard III because it'll only be his second Giro when if he pulls it off in in Verona. And a lot of what I like about the Shakespeare plays, they they often are really like a, a distilled reflection of the various personalities you come across in in a lot of other places than than just you know the, the early Renaissance or, or or nowadays. Will Vincenzo Nibali ride into the sunset in Verona, reflecting that? His love's labours have been lost. No, the, the, no. He, he a won't. lifelong love affair with Giro d'Italia. Will he be riding out with a sense of regret? I don't think so. I, come on, anyone who's won what he's won, if they have any regrets. I mean, we, I think you'll have a few regrets, you know, crashing in Rio and, and other things. But anyone who's accomplished what he has, you know, ultimately you, you also say, and that's not that's as early as you know, Greek philosophy, that I often say you can only judge a man ultimate achievement once he's dead and gone but even if he's only like halfway through life Nibali is an absolute icon in, in modern cycling Brian I think that concludes the press conference and um, also like just finishing off on the Shakespearean element uh, it's not Verona's the Merchant of Venice you know that talks about a pound of flesh and this at the end of this Giro any any rider in contention for the podium will not have a pound of flesh to spare because they're all you know tiny skinny men aren't they they will they will uh, alas that will not be the case for us brian because we're off to have our dinner shortly we're going to shuffle off in our shell suit tracksuit bottoms muttering under our breath about journalists and about their substandard personal hygiene as the race enters the third week but brian it's been a pleasure to have you on well, on this side of the of the microphone for the press conference having for years been the guy who was cursing you for not taking my questions or feeling as though you were very much on the other side of the great divide well first of all I have no issues with your personal hygiene That's and I can say hear. that after having spent a few days with you in the car second of all and I'm not being defensive here I've never refused taking any of your questions Daniel so that's just you're painting a completely wrong picture Brian what are we going to eat tonight something nice and it's, it's the rest day but, but then again not there's no such thing as a rest day in a grand tour 
it's just a, a figure of speaking. But we should have a glass of red here, there's shouldn't a, we? There's a beautiful light over Lake Garda this evening. We didn't get any questions about light quality in different regions of Italy. We were prepared for that. We, that's a subject that we discuss often in the car. Um, although, as I do look out over through this sort of sun haze over Lake Garda tonight... I do spare a thought for our great friend Ciro Scognamiglia, who I imagine is marooned um, somewhere not far from here, um, looking bleakly out of his window. Um, as we heard last night, he's not a big fan of lakes. He will be grinning and bearing the partenza, the ripartenza of tomorrow's Giro d'Italia from Salò on the shore of Lake Garda. And we will resume our coverage there. Well, we'll resume tomorrow night after what we hope is going to be a crackerjack stage from Salot to Aprica in uh, Valtellina. Good night, Brian. Good night, Daniel. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed and Lionel Byrne. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.